Lord our God, we are, <clears throat> we are gathered this morning to see you display yourself in your word. And I can't do that. I do not have what it takes to awaken consciences. I do not have what it takes to make dead men live. I do not have what it takes to provide the kind of transforming clarity that only the Holy Spirit can give. I confess all these shortcomings and weaknesses. I confess all this incapacity and I plead with you by the mercy that you love so much and that you so much delight to pour out upon those you have redeemed. I plead with you to be among us in power today and to make yourself known and again to draw from each heart that worship which it is reasonable to give to such a God. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to teach you a word today. I'm going to help you understand how to use the word awesome correctly. And in order to do that, I'm going to begin by showing you an improper use of this all-too-common word. I'll tell you a story about my boss. I love my boss. I love him very much. He is a dear friend because he manages from a, a position of encouragement and friendship rather than rage and fear and intimidation. And that makes for an exceptionally pleasant work environment, besides which he's probably listening. One of the things that he does to create a spirit of fellowship among his employees is what we call the group text. Now, we all work from home most of the time. We don't see each other very much. We go out into the field and we do what we do. I'm an insurance agent. And, and what we do is we, we go out into the field and we collect our insurance premiums and we sell our new policies and we do what we do. And every time somebody makes a sale, which is a big, fat, hairy deal, that's how we make our living, it's a good thing, he's supposed to send out a text to all the members of the group text saying, this is what I sold and this is how much it was. And everyone goes, yay, yay, hooray. And we get all these texts saying congratulations. Not all sales are created equal. But sometimes I will go out there and let's just say I sell an accident policy to a child. And the premium is $2 per month. Now I promise you, that is not a major shift in the foundations of Western civilization right there. Two bucks. But... When I text out my two bucks, and I know everybody else is going, <laughs> I know everybody's snickering about my great $2 triumph. I know to a mathematical certainty that I'm going to get a text from Chris saying, awesome job, Neil, with a couple of happy little emojis after it. Awesome job. Now, like I said, I love my boss. But that's not, well, let me put it this way. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. <coughs> awesome does not mean marginally competent. <laughs> and I hope that by the end of this sermon, you'll know what the word awesome really means. And you'll be able to use it correctly in a sentence. 
For our instruction in the use of the word awesome, I'd like us to go to a passage that doesn't use the word, because I'm just built that way. The passage is Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. And I've got to confess something before we go into the text. Over the course of my spiritual pilgrimage, I've had any number of passages that for reasons involving circumstance and what's going on in my life right now, any number of passages have served the office of, this is my favorite text in the Bible. For a very long time, my favorite text in the Bible was Deuteronomy 29.29, which all of you know from memory, correct? The secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may obey all the words, works of the words of this law. And my wife, in her kindness and love to me, took some uh, cross stitch and made that, uh, knitted that into a piece of material, and it's hanging in my office as a great text that I've always loved. But times change. Circumstances change. God's teaching me different things. And as of the last several years, this is my favorite text in Scripture. All of it. It reads, Oh, the depth of the riches. I can get through this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be the glory forever. Amen. Let's go back for a second and look at the context. Where is the Apostle Paul when he explodes into this doxology? Well, he's at the top of the theological mountain. We're at the end of Romans chapter 11. The, the, next is, the next word out of his mouth will be therefore. Okay? We've been climbing up Mount Romans and seeing the great doctrines of the Christian faith emerge from what has come to be called the first systematic theology in the history of the Christian church. The first and greatest. And where we are is that place where the emphasis is about to shift. Generally speaking, a Pauline epistle has this kind of a structure. The front end is front-loaded with doctrine and theology, with some application and some ethics. In the middle, there is something amounting to a therefore, and the back end is loaded with application and ethics with still some theology left behind. He does it that way because, one, he wants to make it exceedingly clear that you can never, ever, 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 ever separate doctrine from practice. Never. You always have doctrine and practice going together, each one reinforcing the other. But often, there is an explosion of doxology that tells us that we can never separate doctrine and practice from affections. And we'll be working that a little bit, a little bit later. But let's, let's see what he's got behind him in Romans. Okay, Behind him, he stated that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believeth. 
the just shall live by faith. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? There is therefore now how much condemnation? There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Nay, but, O oh man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that made it, Why hast thou made me thus? If thou wilt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the mountain he's looking down from. It's hard for those of us who spent our lives in Louisiana to understand what that looks like. But in your mind's eye, place yourself atop Everest. Look down at the Himalayas spread out below you, each one a titanic peak all under your feet. And that's where Paul is in his theology. This is the appropriate response to God's truth. Oh, astonishment, amazement, admiration, mind blown, heart full, gratitude, joy, reverence, worship. And Paul does this very often. We call them the Pauline doxologies. In many of Paul's letters, when he's just explored a particularly poignant or powerful idea or truth, Paul breaks out into one of these glorious doxologies. He's like this one in Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. You see that? The worship, the adoration, the exultant joy. How about the little one in Galatians chapter, verse 1, 4 and 5? To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Or this one is he's coming down from his description of the total lack of necessity we have to be anxious upon which more tonight. Philippians 4.20 Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Or as he's opening his way into Timothy. 1 Timothy 1.17 Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, 
the only wise God. Does that sound familiar this morning? Be honor and glory forever and ever. And at the end of the same epistle, 614, our Lord Jesus Christ, the blessed and only potentate, King of kings, Lord of lords, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. He does it all the time. Because when he's confronted with the truth that God, by the inspiration of his Holy Spirit, is supplying him direct and unfiltered from heaven. When he's confronted with his truth, yes, his character is transformed. Yes, his behavior improves. Yes, he becomes wiser and more intelligent. But his affections are caught up in the sheer beauty of it. In the sheer beauty of it. And here in Romans 11 is the fullest and most complete of these doxologies in all of Paul's writings. As I said, in in biblical thought, especially in Pauline thought, there is never a difference, never a divide between doctrine and practice. But there's also never a divide between doctrine and practice and the affections. The realities of the gospel call for, they call for a multifaceted response. We're used to the idea that we should believe the truth. We're used to the idea that we should know the truth and master its content. We're even used to the idea, grace-drenched though we are, we're used to the idea that we should obey the truth. In addition to all these, the Pauline doxologies, especially this one, call us to rejoice in the truth. The emotional core of worship is an apprehension and submission to the beauty of the truth. A rejoicing in it. The Pauline doxologies call us to rejoice in the truth and to be so wholeheartedly captivated by it that we can't help but be in love with it and delight in it and do so together. Because this emotional experience of the truth, this perception of the, beauty, of the beauty of the truth, as the truth is applied, doesn't simply make us look up as spectators at God and say, wow, ain't that cool. It's, it draws us into each other. Because we have a shared union with Christ. We share it. We celebrate it. We party over it. We fall on our faces, overwhelmed and astounded that such realities have flowed from a reconciled heaven and bathed us body and soul in the pleasures of his right hand forevermore. This, this is the invitation that the great apostle offers. Come to worship. Come embrace the lover of your soul who has spread the banquet of his graces before you, a sumptuous feast of miraculous fare purchased at a terrible an infinite cost, yet freely offered to all who will partake. Come. I own pastor has a message that he puts in his Facebook account every Sunday morning. He says, we get to go to church this morning. We get to go to church this morning. Did you feel that privilege when you came here today? Did you feel the sense that something beautiful was available to you, that you had been invited into a presence, a presence that you cherish? 
to know a familiarity that you treasure? Did it make your heart weep for joy to know that God was spreading himself for, his, for, to, for the display of his beauty before you and drawing you into his beauty and reflecting himself in your, in your image? Did you think about that? Now that's the theological and the emotional and the aesthetic context of this doxology. So what's in it? Exactly what glories does Paul ascribe to God in these lines? Okay, well, first of all, knowledge. Oh, the depth of the riches of the knowledge. We begin with God's knowledge displayed in terms of its depth or infinitude. The omniscience of God is a terror to the unreconciled heart. Why? To the unreconciled heart, the heart that thinks I'm, that hopes to get away with things, the knowledge that God knows everything, every secret is open, every sin lies naked and indefensible, nothing is concealed. But to the heart that is reconciled, to the heart that is in the hands of Jesus, that omniscience is there for us, reconciled to us, on our side, available for our use, Available for our guidance. Nothing that perplexes us perplexes him. Nothing that deceives us deceives him. Nothing that clouds our horizons clouds his. Those deeps inside the mind of the triune God, they're not mere data banks lost in the cloud somewhere. The apostle describes them as riches. Oh, the depths of the riches. They're resources. And Christ, in Christ we've got access to them. 1 Corinthians 1.16 says so. We have the mind of Christ. Colossians 2.3. Because I'm a Vantillian, I love Colossians 2.3. It speaks of Christ in whom are hid all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The true knowledge is not possible apart from a commitment to Christ as the author of all knowledge. And since we have union with Christ, we're members of his body. We're the branches of his vine. We have access to, if not the knowledge itself, which would be way, way too much for us to contain, but the practical guidance and the comfort that flows from that knowledge through the pages of Scripture and the counsel of our brothers in Jesus Christ. When I need to get someplace I've never been before, I have a very nice lady that I consult. And she tells me where I need to go. Now why is this delightful lady able to tell me where I need to go? Answer. My lady friend sits in a geosynchronous orbit 22,000 miles above the earth and can see the entire road system of the United States all at the same time. I, as you might have guessed, can't. And how much does she give me when I ask her for directions? She gives me exactly what I need. So when I leave Jackson Street Church, her Grace Church, and I need to get here in the ridiculously small amount of time between finishing my Sunday school class and having to start your, your service, uh, she gets me here turn by turn, step by step, and I hear nothing about Pikes Peak or the Eiffel Tower, both of which she can see. 
She gives me she gives me exactly the information that I need, exactly when I need it, as I'm coming up to the turn. I don't want to know four miles ahead that I have a left turn coming up. I do, however, would like to know that less than 50 feet away. And she knows. She knows exactly what to tell me, exactly when to tell me. We can program that into a machine. How much more is that the case of the omniscient triune God? He knows exactly what to tell you. He knows exactly how to tell it to you. And he knows exactly when. And that infinite knowledge is an inexhaustible and constantly available resource for us to probe and tap into any time we want. But it's not just data. All the depth of the riches, both of the, rich, of the knowledge and... You're supposed to be tracking with me. Knowledge and wisdom of God. How many of you people have had the privilege of knowing somebody who has vast quantities of knowledge in his head, ridiculous amounts of data... And can't tie his shoes, he's so stupid. If anything, the knowledge makes him worse. It gives him the ability to do more, both intentional and unintentional harm. There are two, the two here are placed side by side. They're never separated in God. Earth is filled with knowledgeable fools. There are many full heads who know the facts and who none of, know none of the implications or uses of those facts. The God with whom we are in personal union the God who took on our humanity and carried it into heaven where it lifts human hands before the Father and prays with a human tongue in a human language for the people he has redeemed. He's not merely smart, but wise. He gives the proper word of instruction, warning, or comfort at exactly the right time and in exactly the right way and by exactly the right means. This is the being whose wisdom is described as the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11, the counsel of his will. It's one of my favorite phrases to describe the wisdom of God. What would happen in your life if your naked desire was the counsel that you listened to? How soon would everything come crashing to the ground in a glowing, smoldering, radioactive crater? I'm reminded of an, an incident that Jay Adams describes in his book, Competent to Counsel, where he had this very, very pretty, vivacious 26-year-old young woman whose life was a complete disaster. And it was a complete disaster for all of the predictable reasons that you might think such a woman could wreck her life. And they're going through applying God's word to various areas of human behavior. It was like turning on a searchlight. The insight lit up the sky. She leaped from her chair. And with joy that only an epiphany could bring, she said, wait a minute. You mean I don't have to do what I want to do? In that moment, she was liberated 
from slavery to her own foolishness. And look at the contrast. God, whose knowledge and wisdom are both infinite and life-giving, can describe his desires for our life as the counsel of his will. That his desires are the fountainhead out of which the very idea of wisdom comes. And again, that's not simply a theological category that sits in a book on a shelf making you look smart. It is a resource in the hands of one who loves you, in the hands of one who has opened those hands to make it accessible to you at your convenience. Sometimes he exposes, imposes it on you when it's not convenient. He's so delighted to give you access to the wisdom and knowledge of an infinite God. His word instructs, his providence illustrates and confirms. In both are found simple samples of that one thing that is more valuable to us than anything else could ever conceivably be. His presence. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And then we go to the word unsearchable. Unsearchable judgments, inscrutable ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Uh, This has been an important part of my own theological development, my own spiritual development in the last few years. I have come to delight. I have come to take enormous comfort in the incomprehensibility of God. The incomprehensibility of God. It's become incredibly valuable to me. And there are two theologians that have really played an important role in teaching me the doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God and the value of the incomprehensibility of God, the comforts of the incomprehensibility of God. Those two theologians are Petey and Norman. Petey and Norman are my dogs. It's not uncommon for me to walk into my office and find Petey reading Bobbing's Reformed Dogmatics. These are my dogs. Now, how do my dogs teach me theology? Well... I watch my dogs. I take them for a walk, oh, at least five, six times a day. They sit in my lap whenever I let them, which is pretty much always. That's 140 pounds of dogs between them. So Those dogs look at me, and they look at everything that I do in a day. They see me writing something on the computer. They see me making a phone call. They see me reading a book. They see me cooking. They don't have the vaguest idea what I'm doing. Not the vaguest idea. Because of who they are as compared to what I am, absolutely every detail, even the simplest details of my daily life are in principle, not just they haven't learned it yet, in principle, eternally incomprehensible to them. They have no idea. But they know that Daddy loves them. They know that daddy's always going to be be there with the food bowl. They know that daddy's always going to be there to keep them company. 
Then he's always going to take them outside when they need to go outside. Now, they have a different idea about why they need to go outside. But look at some of the things that happen in their lives that they probably have a fairly hard time dealing with. Use your imagination while I use the word bath. The fear of you and the terror of you shall be upon all the beasts of the field. Or how about this? Man, I really don't feel good. I really don't feel good at all. And how does Daddy deal with that? Daddy comes and he puts me in the car. Well, I love the car. We could go on a road trip. That's cool. And then he takes me to that place where there is a cold steel table and a man who does unspeakable things with diabolical instruments. And I have no idea what's going on. And I don't have the powers of inference that allow me to connect the fact that this guy did something that makes me feel better. I can't make that connection because I'm a dog. Something totally incomprehensible happened. And I feel better now. Incomprehensibility. Now, that's just for scale. You see, I'm two, perhaps three times as intelligent as those dogs. Two or three times. I'm not four times as intelligent as those dogs. And yet that tiny, tiny little difference, that little gap is enough to place my entire world completely beyond their grasp. Now let's jack this up to the power of infinity to see the gap between our understanding and God's. And you'll soon see that my attempt in this, as an, at an illustration here is ridiculously inadequate to convey the difference and the distance between God's knowledge and wisdom and ours. How he looks at reality and how we look at it. What he's planning and what we're living in. And he is weaving together lines of causation and patterns of causality that span across centuries. Tiny little, tiny little things make eternal difference. For example, in 1926, my grandfather, Joseph Hamlin Barham Sr., was, was not Joseph Hamlin Barham Sr. yet. He had just finished his master's in history at Tulane, and he had been offered the position of professor at, of history at UCLA. And he left New Orleans, and he was going to go to California and take up, I mean, he had accepted the position. He was going to go be a professor of history at UCLA. On the way to California, he stopped in Baton Rouge to visit an old friend and say hi. I have no idea who this old friend was. I have no idea how this conversation got started. But the gist of the conversation was, hey, you don't need to go to Los Angeles and be a professor of history. What you need to do is go to New Iberia, Louisiana and sell car loans. And for incomprehensible reasons, my grandfather turned down a teaching position at UCLA and went to New Iberia to sell car loans. Otherwise, you and I would not have known each other. My entire existence depends on that game of golf 
that brought them together. Oh, by the way, my grandfather, who stopped to play golf in Baton Rouge, had never held a golf club in his hand before that day and would never do so again. How's that for a fine thread of providence on which much depends? My father owes his life to that. I owe my life to that. My sister owes her life to that. My sister's three children and my three children owe their lives to that, and we're just getting warmed up because of a golf game. The counsel of his will. Self-contained sufficiency. Who has been his counselor? What he has, nobody gave him. He has it within himself by nature, intrinsically, without help. How could anybody advise the being whose mind has held the entire structure and history of the universe in all of its actuality, in all of its potentiality, in all of its relationships, in all of its interconnectedness, in all of its interacting influences from the supragalactic to the subatomic level, inside the Planck time, and across how many billions and billions and billions of light years that this universe stretches across? Who has embraced all that, the whole of it, in his mind from eternity past and will know its every detail when the last quark of the last proton decays into non-existence? Who has contained that? To that being, to that God, the creature of a day would give advice. Do you not see the absurdity? No, your appropriate posture before that kind of a being is prostration in worship. Delighting in the swarm of miracles by which such a God has lifted you out of rebellious misery and made you his friend, made you his child. Or who hath first given to him that shall be recompensed unto him again? Complaint and bitterness, unhappiness, they die here. Rejoice. You're owed nothing. Yet you receive life and breath and food and shelter and comfort and friendship and family and a place in the very body, in the very flesh of a man who is God. You who are by nature fleeting as a whisper. And fragile as gossamer, you will survive death itself. You will watch the end of the universe in such company as this. And he will break the scales that weighed galactic clusters with the weight of the glory you will see. And you will never, 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 never find the bottom of those great depths out of which you are loved. Obviously, this is going to impose a theocentric view on life. What does that word mean? Theocentric. Centered on God. Verse 36. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. The most fundamental reality in all of reality is that all of reality is about God. That's, the, that's your take-home line. I'm going to say it again. 
The most fundamental reality in all of reality is that all of reality is about God. Let me hear that. The most fundamental reality in all of reality is that all of reality is about God. No excuse for you not to know that. Take that home and rejoice in it. He is the source of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the purpose of all things. He's why there is a reality in the first place. To whom be glory forever. The word is doxa. The idea of doxa, has to, it is translating the Hebrew word kavod, and it refers to weight. It refers to heaviness. Uh, we sometimes talk about certain kinds of people who have what we call gravitas. What does that mean? What do you think of when you hear a man described as having gravitas? Yeah, people with gravitas are very, very rare on the stand-up comedy circuit. They don't show up well. They're not silly. They're not light. There's a sense of importance. There's a sense of weight. There's a sense of this guy matters. They radiate that from the way they conduct themselves, from the way they speak, what they talk about, what they say. It's the kind of guy when he walks in a room, everybody shuts up and waits. What's going to happen? Gravitas. Doxa. Glory carries that sense of the weightiness of the God that's being glorified. And when I say we glorify God, what I mean is we discover the glory that's already there and reflect it. We, we reveal it, it's revealed to us and we reveal it to others. The word magnify, Psalm 34, 3, means the same thing. But in addition to this concept of weight and gravity and importance, glory also refers to the radiance, the brightness, the majesty, the awe that's associated with the presence of the living God. Somebody is here. Somebody who matters is here. Somebody of infinite gravity is here. Things that have glory are matters of weight and gravity. They're important. They're not trivial. They require your full, your undivided attention. This is where our apostle is trying to take us. He wants us to pay attention to that which is ultimately glorious. Ultimately grave and weighty and important and bright and beautiful. The whole idea is that we're in the presence of that that defines presence itself. We're in the presence of the one who gave us existence and life, the one who pours out his perfections upon us, even within us. What is sanctification? Sanctification is a renewal in the whole man after the image of Christ. What's going on there? The idea is that when we come into the gathered presence of God to worship Him, what happens is not just that we learn something. I don't know if any of you have actually heard me do it, but on many occasions I have prayed to God before a sermon, please, O Lord God, deliver us from mere education. And there's a reason why I do that. I was trained as a teacher. What have I got against education? The reason that I pray like that is I don't want people to come before God for an information download so that they can go home 
having four more facts in their head and go watch football. What I think should happen in this room is that people should see God. And that when they've seen God, they are so completely caught up in the vision of God, in who He is and what He has done, that every thought in their head, every affection of their heart, every priority on their calendar is totally reshaped in the pursuit of more of this God. And that would, would flow from that out of, the, out of the apprehension of that overwhelming beauty. What would flow from that is a greater desire for His presence. A greater cherishing of His love. That you would see this as the trysting place of the soul. And would come in that mindset, in that heart set, to see the man who's taken your nature up into heaven, to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit praying for you as he intercedes with groanings too deep for words, and the intercession of your great high priest whose nail-pierced hands are held before the Father in constant prayer for you. That is the worship that I hope we've called you here together to do. So, question. Do you know what the word awesome means now? Let's approach this God. Lord our God, uh, we fall on our faces. We lift up our hearts we rejoice in who you are, what you've done. We ask you please to keep our affections stirred up in love for you, in pursuit of you, in the delight of you. That you would banish every diminution of our joy by the sight of your face. Give us hearts of unceasing worship and bring them daily as well as weekly into this kind of a presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to him I thought appropriate for this sermon, Crown Him with Many Crowns, hymn number 380.